open up that passage. We're going to walk through the entirety of chapter 2 this afternoon. I got my work cut out. I sympathize now with Pastor Scott, who preaches regularly in the afternoon service. Everyone already looks tired, so I hate to think what you're going to look like by the time I'm done. But it's been a bit of a longer break since we've been in Titus. You'll remember that we've made our way so far all the way through chapter 1. We're going to turn the corner today and begin looking at a distinctly different section in Paul's logic at the beginning of chapter 2. What we've seen to this point, I'll give us a brief overview of where we've been in our journey, is his list of moral characteristics required for those who would lead in the church. That, of course, followed his introduction to the letter that set his agenda as a servant of God in the mind of Titus as he was reading the letter. But that list of moral character qualities preceded some insight into those whose teaching were leading people astray in the church of Jesus Christ on the island of Crete. You'll recall with me that the men appointed as elders on that island were to be known for being above reproach, models of godliness with a commitment to God's word as they led and protected God's people in the midst of so many who were leading them away from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. Now, it's been the thrust of his writing so far. Paul is very concerned that the church of Jesus Christ not only proclaim the gospel, but practice godliness in the midst of that gospel message. That, of course, requires godly leaders in the church, which is why Paul spent so much time in verses 5 to 9 highlighting exactly what kind of a man should lead in the church. The last time we were together, we spent some time looking at the end of chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, at what Paul was telling Titus about the nature of people that he would be ministering against on Crete. We gained some insight into the opponents of the gospel there. We saw that the false teachers who held sway in the Cretan church were marked by insubordination. That is... They didn't submit to the Lord they claimed to be serving. They were empty talkers and deceivers, according to verse 10. They needed to be silenced because, according to the text, they were upsetting whole families as a result of teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. We saw how their ministry reflected not so much the transformation that comes with knowing and walking with Christ, but actually the corrupt Cretan culture, paganism. The church was in bad shape as the church embraced the teaching from those false teachers. You remember what the heart of the problem was with these false teachers. We looked at it last time. Not surprisingly, it's the same problem that we find in any other human problem today. The heart of the problem with the Cretan false teachers was the problem with their hearts, their spiritual inner being. Paul told Titus that they were defiled and unbelieving as they themselves rejected the pure message of the gospel. And rather than embracing the gospel, what they said was that we're going to add rules to it. If you would be right with God, then follow us because we have the way to him. Believe the gospel plus follow us. You had legalism on the one hand and on the other you had licentiousness. That's a fancy word for living as you would like. They didn't regard the law of God at all. So they were committed to legalism, adding rules to follow in order to be rightly related to God. 
And they were known for their licentiousness, not submitting to the law of God as they should, as those who profess to know him in a certain way. Now, in rejecting the gospel that they should have been proclaiming as servants of God, they missed out on the personal transformation that's to come for every believer as they submit themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. These false teachers went around, as the text says at the end of chapter uh, 1, professing to know God. Yes, we know God. Come follow us. While living all the while as though they wanted nothing to do with God. Professing to know God, but denying him by their works. Paul ends that section of the letter with that brief but fitting description of their moral character. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now what a situation for Titus to have to minister in. Can you imagine a similar situation today? If you look outside in the world... Think of all of the things that press on the church to tempt her away from Jesus Christ, one in which so much falsehood and ungodliness abounds. I wonder, maybe as we use our sanctified imaginations, whether Titus would have been slightly overwhelmed as he took this letter from Paul and was reminded about how bad things were in the Cretan church. It wouldn't have been news to Titus. He was there with Paul. That's why Paul left him behind to set into order what remained in the churches. So Titus knew what he was getting himself into. But to be reminded again through this letter that, boy, there's work to do. I need some godly men to set into positions of eldership that this church might be placed on its right course. What to do, what to do. What was Titus to do if he was to influence men and women in these congregations toward godliness? What are we to do today when the culture in which we live stands very, very much opposed to Jesus Christ and his word? When we in our own congregation can make unwise steps at times to expose ourselves to worldliness, to ungodliness, what are we to be taught? What should the servant of God today proclaim with a boldness? to call Jesus Christ's people back to faithfulness to him. What do God's servants need to teach today if the witness of the church today is to remain faithful to Jesus Christ? That's really the aim of my sermon is to answer that question as we look at Titus chapter 2 together. We're going to consider the divine direction that Paul gave to Titus in light of the opponents that he faced on the island of Crete. There's going to be a contrast that we see a contrast to the corrupting falsehood and ungodly living of the Cretan culture, Titus would need to ensure that he was teaching and living what corresponded with, not the world, but God's truth. And if there would be a contrast between Christians on Crete and the Cretan culture, it would have to come in the lives of Christians on Crete who would follow the instruction that they received from Titus and the men that he would appoint regarding what their lives should look like in response to the gospel that went out through the leaders in these churches. Now, with that contrast in our minds, hold that word contrast in your minds, what I want us to see next is the content of godly instruction that would go forth in these churches. 
what it is that Titus was commanded to teach those in his care and those who he would raise up or confirm in positions of eldership. Paul is going to appeal to some very, very special gospel doctrine. But he's also going to say that certain things need to be taught in relation to that doctrine such that people would know how to live. We'll see that the things that Titus is told to teach in the church is grounded in some certain doctrinal convictions that fuel the transformation of God's people as they embrace these truths and walk them out in their lives. Paul will appeal to some wonderful gospel doctrine to explain why God's people must not only profess to know God, but prove it by their works. It's the knowledge and application of these core convictions that we'll look at that must motivate every Christian in every age toward Christ-like living in every aspect of life for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ and the witness of his church in the world. So let me ask those questions again so they're firmly planted in our minds. What do God's people today need to learn and apply? What do God's servants in the church need to teach if the witness of the church would remain faithful to her Lord? In Titus chapter 2, we're going to consider the contrast between godly leaders and the ungodly ones. The content of the teaching that they would give, that godly teaching, and the convictions that drive it all, the convictions that take a person and transform them into the glory of Jesus Christ. Now what I'd like to do is set our text in our minds, and I'll start reading from the end of chapter 1, where we see Paul's description of the false teachers in the church. That, we'll pick it up at chapter 1, verse 15. Remember here, he's describing the problem with the false teachers. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of God, good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
That's the text before us. I want to walk us through from verse number one. And I'd like to see us note something first in verse one that holds out a contrast. A contrast between what Titus should be and do and the false teachers that he just described. So after he points out the ungodliness of those false teachers, those who profess to know God and deny him by their works, Paul turns his attention to Titus, and he says, in essence, Titus, that's how they're living. That's what they're motivated by. That's what they're living for. That's what they're doing. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, there's no doubt that as part of this contrast, Titus was to live a godly life. We see ahead in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, show yourself in all respects, to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Quite the opposite of what the false teachers were engaged in. It's clear that there was to be a contrast in character between Titus, who knew God, and those who professed to know God and denied him by their works. But notice something in verse 1 with me. While Titus and his opponents were both teaching... Paul exhorted him toward a contrast that is based not on the activity, but what they're teaching as part of that activity. Given the ungodliness of the false teachers and the sinful manner of living that they were promoting, Paul said to Titus, you teach with what accords with sound doctrine. That word but sets up a contrast, but as we'll see in a moment, it's not the commitment to teaching that needed to differ, but the content of that teaching, what it was that he was supposed to be teaching in contrast to the false teachers. Now, hold on to that thought because we'll come back to it. I want us to note briefly something before we move on about the motivation behind the teaching of the false teachers. Not only the material that they're propagating, but the motivation behind it. In Titus 1.11, we read last time that The false teachers in the church on Crete were teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They were servants of self, motivated by selfish gain, instead of ministering as they should have, as those who profess to know God, out of a spirit that was more willing to give than to receive. In contrast, Titus would perhaps have been reminded, even from Paul's greeting, that he was a servant of God to be ministering the word of God for the sake of God's elect that they might come to the knowledge of the truth and be grown up into it. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness is the phrase that Paul uses in Titus 1.1. So we see a distinct contrast between the motivations of Titus and the men he would appoint and the false teachers that they were opposing. Difference in motivation. I want to make this personal before we move on, because it's important when we stare at a text like this that we don't just breeze by anything that would challenge our own motivations. In light of the contrast in motivations on Crete, we do well to examine in our own hearts, why do we minister in the capacities that we do? Why do we do what we do in the church? For whose benefit are we serving? What or who motivates our ministry? We might find that our motivations are not as pure as we might think. And so from time to time when we see a text like this, let us examine our hearts and find out 
whether we are serving ourselves or the Lord. Now, we'll come back to where we were headed. With the idea of contrast in mind, let's consider that Titus and those he was to appoint were called to teach. There's the contrast of how they should be living. There's also a contrast in what they were teaching, the content of their teaching. Paul says, Titus 2.1, But as for you, teach, here's the key phrase, what accords with sound doctrine. Paul insists here that the content of faithful teaching is that which accords with sound doctrine. Now, take that phrase, sound doctrine, and look with me at it. As we've said before, that is healthy teaching. That is corresponding to the truth of God's word. We would include the commands of the Lord Jesus, the doctrine that the apostles give, the exhortations that they give for the church to follow, to do certain things and not do certain things. That is sound doctrine. It's a set of core Christian convictions from God's word that governs and guides the lives of God's people. Things to know that lead Christians to grow. It's a body of truth that transforms. Just to quote Paul for one second, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. What renews it? The Spirit of God renews us day by day by the truth that God gives to sanctify his people and grow them in spiritual health and vitality. That's what sound doctrine does. But I want you to notice something about what Paul instructs Titus in here. He's to teach not just sound doctrine, but what accords with sound doctrine. Given the mess in the church on Crete, so many ungodly influences were putting ungodliness on display. And so instruction was necessary in those churches from the elders who would be appointed, from Titus himself as he got them there, to live in a certain way. He needed to teach that which corresponds to, that which matches with, that which flows out of, agrees with, that which is appropriate to, sound doctrine. Paul is very concerned that Christians receive instruction in what should characterize their lives in order that the church would be a witness for Christ that it was intended to be on that island. Imagine how stark that contrast would be as they received and embraced that teaching in the midst of so many liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons that characterize the people on Crete. It's understood here that Titus needed to be committed to sound doctrine. We saw that back in verse number 9. No one should ever argue that those leading in the church should not be teaching sound doctrine. We'll see that that is fundamental, that's foundational to any growth in the church. But here he says something different. It's not only sound doctrine that Titus needed to teach. He also needed to speak of those things consistent with what sound doctrine should produce in the lives of those who would learn it. The New Living Translation puts this verse in this way. As for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. It's quite a bit different from the ESV. It's a different type of translation, but I think that really helps us to understand the thrust of Paul's thought here. Promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. We see the content of his teaching, those things that accord with sound doctrine, in Titus chapter 2, verses 2 to 10. And we're just going to skip through these 
very, very quickly. We're going to dig into those in the weeks and months to come. But what is it that Titus is to ensure that he's teaching those in the Cretan church? From verse number 2, we see that Paul expected Titus to teach that if an older man professed to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, then his life should be marked increasingly by the following things. He lists sober-mindedness, dignity, self-control, and soundness in faith and love and in steadfastness. These are things that should mark older men in the church. Moving on to verses 3 to 5, he moves from older men to older women. And he says that certain things should be evident in the lives of older women who profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles open, let's look at what they are. According to the passage, godly women are not to be known for slander or to be enslaved to much wine, since as with the older men who profess to know God, they should be marked by self-control. These godly older women also had a specific purpose in the church as they also do today. They would be given to teaching godliness to the younger women in the church who needed to learn how to love their husbands and their children. The Lord would use older women in the church to teach younger women in the church how that looks like. And just as older men and older women in the church were called to be self-controlled, so younger women would be also called to be self-controlled. In addition to some other things, we see them there in verse number 5. They were to be pure, working hard to keep their homes with kindness and submission to the husbands God gave them. There's another group addressed by Paul in verse number six, just a short verse that addresses younger men. Guess what they're to be? Self-controlled. Now, you'll notice that that character quality is a common thing to be present in the lives of every believer in the church of Jesus Christ. Older men, older women. Younger women, younger men. According to this passage and other passages in the Word of God are to be marked, among other things, by self-control. You can imagine what difference the church would make in the midst of people who were given over to their own passions, their own lusts, their own laziness. They're always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. But imagine the stark contrast if you were in a congregation that witnessed to the world as a group of people who were self-controlled. What a difference self-control would make in a congregation. According to what we'll see in verse 12 later, self-control is certainly expected in those who were being trained by the Lord for godly living. It's that all-important, spirit-given and I'm quoting someone here that appears in Jerry Bridges' book, it's the ability to avoid excesses, to stay within reasonable bounds, to bring your life in subjection to the Lord's rule. Here in Titus chapter 2, Paul wants Titus to know that what accords with sound doctrine impacts inward heart attitudes as well as outward actions of individuals in both genders and all age groups. It's not a person who is exempt. We also see, and this is noteworthy, that what accords with sound doctrine impacts those in the pulpit as well as those in the pew. The whole church is impacted because they're exhorted to live in a certain way. 
Titus and the men he would appoint were not exempt from the instruction in godly living. We already mentioned verses 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model, someone who could be followed after, a model of God's work, sorry, of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Titus was to model godliness to other leaders and those that they would lead. He was, as Paul would say, worth imitating as he imitated Christ. Paul mentions one more aspect of living that's to be transformed by the gospel that needs some instruction in sound doctrine or what accords with sound doctrine, verses 9 and 10. We can look at our home lives. We can be exhorted to live in a certain way with our spouses and our children. We can be exhorted to live in a certain way among church members. But what about the workplace? We ought not to compartmentalize our lives to be different in a workplace than they are in the church. So Paul addresses masters and bondservants, or the terminology we might use today, employers and employees. But he says, Christian workers are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything, not some things, but everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So that in the workplace, we leave our families and we go in, we rub shoulders with unsaved workers. We are putting on beautiful display how God has transformed our lives. Adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. As a beautiful wife would put on makeup and a dress to go out for dinner. Making herself beautiful for her husband. So we, the church, even in the workplace must look different so that people would see what Christ has done in our lives. The end of verse 10 applies most directly to the arena of the workplace, but it applies just as much to everything else that we have said. We are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. How will the world see the glories of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he gives unless the church acts in accordance with what Christ has done to redeem her. Titus was charged with teaching not just the doctrine that transforms life, but also what the transformed life should look like in light of that doctrine. Our lives need to look significantly different from those outside of Christ. The same contrast that we're hearing about in the Word of God tonight that happened on Crete between Titus and the false teachers is the same contrast that we're called to in the church today. There should be a difference in how we live. That can only happen when we're being formed through instruction in what accords with sound doctrine. It's not sufficient to only know the right things about theology, folks. That is a very necessary part of what it means to be Christian. But we need to be taught what it looks like to live in light of that doctrine. We need to know what right living looks like and we need to be urged on lovingly toward it. Think in practical terms for a moment. How does that happen? How do we receive instruction like that? Preachers and teachers in the church should not shrink back 
from calling God's people to live the holy lives that God has called us to live. There are three pastors in the room. There are other Bible teachers in the room. There are parents in the room. There are brothers and sisters who come alongside brothers and sisters in the room. We ought not to shrink back from calling one another to the holy lives that our God has called us to. And there's a reluctance at times to do that, isn't there? The fear of man is a snare. It's not popular to be used of God at times to provide loving correction when a brother or sister is erring in the direction of worldliness. God can often use us to take a passage like Titus chapter 2 and say, brother, sister, you are walking outside of God's bounds for your life and we're stepping on their toes. We don't want to feel that toe steppage. I think I just made up a term. But it's not nice when we feel like we're stepping on someone's toes. It's not nice when someone pushes back and said, I don't want to hear that from you because I want to live the way I want to live. The word of God says, though, that we need to be exhorted in that direction. We ought not to shrink back from holding out to one another what it looks like, what we're called to live in light of what the word of God says. Paul says that in light of what God has done for us, older men, older women, younger women and younger men, whether married or single, working or retired, need to be instructed in how to live for God's glory. Do you see how this is all encompassing? There's not one person in the church that's exempt from this instruction. It follows that every one of us in these groups should be expecting to be instructed and exhorted at times in how to live for God's glory. Yes, hear this now, yes, God really is going to use other people to tell you how you should be living. Notice with me that he intends for this instruction to come not only from those in formal leadership roles like Titus and those he would appoint to the eldership role, but also in the context of discipleship relationships in the church. We breeze through it when we were talking about the ministry of older women to younger women in verses 3 to 5. But note the principle there, the direct application for women in the church. Older women are to teach what is good and so train the younger women in various things consistent with godly living. And so we say, well, that's good for the women. I'm a man, I don't need to do that. Wrong. Because that model of discipleship is to be applied between older men and younger men. So thankful for that Bible study opportunity that's resuming on Saturday as we come together as men in the church, older men coming alongside younger men to do a study on the discipline of grace. What wonderful opportunity to apply the principle of this text for older men to come alongside younger men and be instructed in how to live in a godly way. Consider your life for a moment as I consider mine. Are we actively involved in making and maturing disciples for Jesus Christ in the local church on the basis of this principle? this discipleship principle. We need to be involved in making and maturing disciples for the glory of Jesus Christ. He even gave us a command to that end. We're to make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There's that teaching element. We're to teach what accords with sound doctrine. We're to teach what Jesus taught about how to live for him. We all have that responsibility in the church to speak truthfully and lovingly to one another as we build one another up into the fullness of our head, Jesus Christ. So let's not shrink back from that wonderful responsibility that we have. We've been called to exhort others toward that contrast of Christian living. Now we want to be a witness in the world, don't we? We want to exhort one another, encourage one another, correct one another where necessary, that we might take the word of God and be formed by it so that we put on display the glory of God and his gospel. That requires there to be a contrast between the church and the world. We've said that that contrast comes from being exhorted from a particular body of teaching. The content of our teaching must not only impose or impart to us what to believe, but what difference it makes, i.e. how you should live in light of those things. Those things that we believe are what I'm going to call convictions. I want us to see now the convictions that drive the content of our teaching, that give rise to Christ-like character, that contrast so clearly with the world to make us a vibrant witness for the glory of God. That's how my three C's are coming together here. I'm hoping you're catching that. Convictions that drive the content of our teaching that give rise to Christ-like character to produce in us a contrast with the world. It has been well said that what we believe shapes how we live. As Christians, we hold particular convictions about what is true and false. We should even at times be willing to die for those convictions, should we not? But these things are to drive how we behave. That's supposed to be what's happening anyway. I I know that we're so prone to wonder. We sing about that. So often we fail to actually live out what we say we believe. But the Lord's intent for us is to live lives consistent with what we say we believe about what he's done for us. We're called to live consistently with our convictions. And what I mean by convictions here are dearly held Concrete truths from the word of God. These are core Christian beliefs. That which binds us together in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see what they are in verses 11 to 14. But these are true things that lead to transformation of the body of Christ. Transformation in the lives of those who, by God's grace, would submit to Jesus Christ and commit to following what he says we should do and not do. Now, maybe it's the way I learn, okay? I like to make up little ditties, little rhymes. Maybe you'll be helped by these too. Because these things are very true, there are some things I must not do. I don't like that reaction, dude. This is supposed to be helpful. Say that positively. Because these things are very true, there are some things I must now do. That's the positive aspect of this. Now, if you've studied Ephesians or Colossians, You're probably familiar already with how Paul starts with indicatives. He tells you what's true, and then he follows it up with imperatives, what you must do. 
In Titus, he flips that on its head. I want us to see that. So let me basically paraphrase what he says from chapter 1, verse 5, and that's going to lead us through what we're about to look at as these core convictions that drive everything in chapter 2. Here's my paraphrase. Titus, here's what I want you to do as you remain in Crete without me. Set straight what is still out of place by appointing qualified men to lead in the church. They need to be above reproach, exemplary husbands, faithful fathers, spirit-led leaders, models of godliness, and committed to God's word because of the state of the church with so many false teachers leading people astray with a lack of truth. They don't know God, Titus. You can see from their works that they want nothing to do with him. But as for you, teach what Christian living looks like. Promote not the ungodliness of your culture through what you teach, but the things that reflect wholesome teaching so that everyone in the church will be challenged to live for Christ. What Titus says, why, Paul? Why should I teach those things? And Paul would reply, let me tell you why. Because that's why Christ came. Paul roots the content of that godly teaching that's to go forth from the teachers in the church to the reality that Christ came to transform his church, that the world might see how glorious he is as a savior and want to follow him. Titus 2 verse 11 starts with 4. Here's the explanation of why he should teach such things. 4, because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God, great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who were zealous for good works. This is the gospel foundation, the core Christian convictions that drive the godly living that Titus was to promote through what he taught. Now think through what that is saying. Because the grace of God appeared to ensure that all manner of people could be saved. Because the grace of God trains believers in Christ to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions that previously defined them in their former manner of living, because the grace of God teaches believers to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age as they wait the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself to purchase us from our former lawlessness, because of his work to purify them as his own possession, because of how he now has lordship over his church and has every right to tell them how to live and show themselves to belong to him, because of these things, because these things are true, life for the believer looks different. Because of what is true in verses 11 to 14 about God's saving grace in Jesus Christ, the lives of people in the church who profess to know God are to look distinctly different when contrasted with the world and those in the church who profess to know God but deny him by their works. It has to be that way. People need to be taught to live in a certain way. 
because Jesus died and rose again to make it so. Life looks different for disciples of Jesus Christ whose lives flow out of believing the truths in these verses. Because these things are very true, there are some things I must now do. We're to be exhorted toward godly living, to put off certain things and to put on certain godly replacements because of the gospel convictions that are true, that we hold to, that we guard with our lives. Now we'll see when we get to studying that passage in verses 11 to 14 that there is so much hope for change in this passage. As we understand and apply these truths to our lives, there is so much hope that our lives can look distinctly different from what they were outside of Christ. There's distinct hope here for you as a Christian who wants to make progress in a certain aspect of living. These are words that are sweeter than honey to the taste of those who would, by God's grace, grow out of things that we've mentioned before. Arrogance, anger, addiction, abuse, or an attraction to worldly treasures. And get this, no one is exempt from this hopeful message. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Sinners of every kind can be saved and transformed through this wonderful message. If your life is marked by ungodliness in any way, I have ungodliness in my life. You must have ungodliness in your life because the word of God says about us all that we are in process. But if you have ungodliness in your life in any way, take heart this afternoon. Change is possible as you embrace the truths about what Christ has done as it's described in this passage. These are the convictions that drive the content of our teaching about how Christians should live such a way as to be a contrast with the world to put God's saving glory on display even through Emmanuel Baptist Church. Now I started out with asking some questions, didn't I? When the culture in which we live tends to press in on the church, when our own membership at times begins to drift into worldly living, what do God's people need to learn and apply? What do God's servants need to teach that the Witness of the church would be preserved today. Well, we've seen in this survey of chapter 2 that certain glorious gospel convictions drive the content of the teaching that needs to be provided in the church from those in the pulpit and those in the pew. This is an all-church ministry endeavor. Now, our precious convictions about what Jesus is to us, what he's done, who he is, form what we call sound doctrine. They're the necessary gospel foundation that drives that character transformation so that we might put God's saving glory on display. But as we've seen, we need more than sound doctrine. According to our text, we need to hear what living it out should look like. In obedience to God's word today, let us not neglect to teach how we should live in light of the doctrine we say we hold so dear. May the Lord make us diligent to teach and apply what we've learned today, that contrast of Christian living. I want to ask for his help as we do that as a church. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you've given us such clear direction for how to operate in the world. 
We're so thankful for wonderful gospel doctrine, these core convictions that bind us together. Indeed, these things that we believe, Lord, that we might be believers in Christ, that he died for our sins, that he rose again on the third day, that he's coming again to gather his saints. But we recognize, Lord, that you've called us to know more than just sound doctrine. You want to see our lives transformed, and that's where we come about in the church to learn not just sound doctrine, Lord, but that which accords with sound doctrine. Make us men, Lord, who are committed to godliness. We want to be sober-minded in our living, Lord. We want to be self-controlled. We want to be upright. We want to be steadfast in hope and in love. God, may you help the older women in our church also be self-controlled, not given to much wine or slander, to use their tongues for God-glorifying purposes, Lord, even to teach the young women how they ought to love their husbands and their children. God, make the younger men in our congregation Alongside the younger women, self-controlled, Lord, we want to be a congregation that honors you. We hear the call from this text to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Help us not to forget what we've heard, but to apply it. Cause our discipleship relationships in this church, Lord, to prosper, that we might all be grown into the fullness of our head, Jesus Christ, so that he would be glorified through our congregation. We pray that you would help us do these things in Jesus' name. Amen.